Thankful are we, no doubt, that we've each been given the privilege on this Sunday morning to assemble and to gather in the way that we are, and certainly how thankful we are for the Lord's establishment of the church. I might take just a moment and say that our lesson this morning, though I've entitled it When and Where, it will really connect rather basically to the church. But one other thing may be as just a little invitation about tonight's lesson, having to do with the Antichrist. No subject maybe rises beyond that one in terms of what so often we hear relative to supposedly near the end of time or things of that nature. Come back and be with us this evening as we look at the five verses that make mention of the Antichrist and see what God really has to say about it. I think it will be encouraging study for each of us. But as far as when and where... I've asked you to consider Luke 24, verse 49 as the lesson text, and John read a moment ago from that chapter. If you hold that thought in place, perhaps also that place in your Bible, we'll come to that rather shortly. Let's build up to it in the following way, if we might. This introductory slide will proceed as follows. All of us are aware of the fact that the church is the most glorious institution on earth. We read in Ephesians 3.21, Unto Him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. Now, interestingly enough, that chapter is the very one that we're currently considering on Wednesday evenings. And be it the will of God, we'll continue that chapter this coming Wednesday. But as a part of it, you note the glory attached to the church, that for which she stands, and that which is her business, and that which is her connection to God. But yet this morning, I have a question, or at least I have a matter of discussion with you. So if the church is so glorious, and yet we live in a world where quite often there is an understanding, at least in the mind of many, an understanding that relates to, you just can't know what church is the faithful one, if there even is a faithful one. It is all left in the realm of a relative discussion. This community or this group of believers believes one set of ideas. This one believes a different one. And yet, supposedly, both are acceptable and both are pleasing. And quite often, many will say, well, there's just no way for you to know that there's any identifying marks for that kind of church as opposed to any other one. I have two observations along that line, and they're the title of the lesson. Does the Word of God have anything to say? about concrete and very clearly understood matters such as when and where. I think we're all rather aware of the fact that if there's definitive answers to two questions like that, then that forms the basis for so many other things. Speaking of that, let's look at the first element of the lesson then, and then we'll build that more carefully in just a moment. There's really no doubt that there are so many in our world who are given to the understanding that Christianity is a good thing and that Christianity in many ways is right. But yet the question quickly asked, this version of Christianity is different than some other people's versions. Are both okay? Are both of them acceptable? It is in that regard that I would ask you to note this. The New Testament is rather clear on this point. 
And though men may not particularly get thrilled at the answer, it doesn't change what the Bible says. Lord, how many churches did you build? And he himself stated in Matthew 16, 18, you remember he had come into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. And while there, he had this powerful discussion with, with his apostles. As a part of it, he said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And with the thunderous character of that response, you and I remember even in that day that there were many religious groups and organizations. And yet the Lord distinguished this observation, I'll build my church. He at that point identified not only in the hearing of Peter, but in the hearing of all the others that were there present. I'll build one church, my church. The word my is a possessive singular adjective. And the word church is a singular noun. And you and I might note that not only is it singular in English, it was also in Greek. He only promised to build one. And yet as times have rolled forward, as decades have turned into centuries, and at this point centuries into millennia, we now realize that never has changed in terms of what the Lord declared. And so on that slide, it brings us to verses like this. Paul could say to the church at Ephesus, There is one body, just one. We know he was referring to the church because three chapters earlier, in Ephesians 1 verses 20 and 21, or rather 22 and 23, he pointed out that he hath put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. And so it is that the church is the body of Christ. Isn't it beautiful then to contemplate that unity that exists between the head, which is Christ, and the church, which is His body. It is for that reason on the slide, it is easy to appreciate the confusion that then could exist in the mind of an honest seeker of truth today. Suppose someone were seriously interested. They arise on a Sunday morning, and perhaps a gentleman speaks to his wife, we really need to get business into the business of religion. Our children are getting older, and we really need to take this more seriously. Where should we go today? They start driving along the roadway of virtually any major metropolitan city in our country. You pass dozens of buildings of religious organizations. They wear different names. They have different practices. They proclaim different beliefs. No wonder the person could then say, which place do we stop? And yet we've just read the Lord promised to build but one body, one church, and Paul affirmed that such was the case. About the middle of that slide, you then can see these additional developments. We just noted the writing in Ephesians. You might turn over to Colossians 1.18. In the opening chapter of the Colossian letter, Paul had these words to say, Speaking of Christ, he says, He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. The Lord has all preeminence, and there is but one body. And in that body... With respect to Christ, He, of course, has all preeminence. I would offer you this thought then. If that be so, 
and especially given the statements made other places in the New Testament, there were some religious organizations which were not acceptable. You might hear that again. There were some religious organizations that were not acceptable because of what they proclaimed, because of what they believed, because of their identity. For that reason, look at 2 John verses 9 through 11. There you remember that John rather powerfully asserted that anybody, by that I mean any particular grouping, if they proclaim not the doctrine of Christ, then they do not have God. May I suggest that's strong language. To think then that here's an organization, they claim to have God. They claim to have the thoroughfare to heaven. But yet the inspired writer says they don't have God, despite what they say. Today, are we faced with challenges like this? We know that we are. Among the latest statistics are things somewhat similar to this. The World Christian Encyclopedia maintains a listing of and a particular grouping in relation to the Christian organizations on this planet. There are now over 40,000 organizations regarded as Christian churches. 40,000. And it's growing by over 10 a week. May I say it again? Over 40,000 and the number is growing rather notably. How do you know which one's right? The Lord said He only built one, and so out of that multitude of numbers, the one that is the church of our Lord must be identified. It must be because our eternal salvation depends on it. Ephesians 5.23 still says, Christ is the Savior of the body. And if it's true that the body is the church, which we've learned that it is, that means He's going to save those in that body. It's vital in it, it to be a part of the body. And so as we close that slide, back to our question, how do we know? The Bible has so much to say about this, we're only going to select two of the criteria. But we're going to look at them like this. Isn't it a very refreshing thing when there is a concrete answer to something that is a question in your mind or mine? By that I mean when there's a particular thing in life that needs to be done and you perhaps are motivated because some people do it one way and others do it a different way, but when there's something concrete, I can look at this and know for sure that this is the correct way. May I suggest that the things we're about to discuss today fall in that category. When and where? When was the church established? And where was it established? Any religious organization, may I say, if the Bible gives us the answer to those questions, any religious organization that does not trace its date of beginning and its place of beginning to those two, and those are concrete matters, then that couldn't possibly be the church of our Lord if it cannot meet those criteria. And so let's look at the first one. What about the date of the church's beginning? That is to say, what about the when attached to its beginning? As we begin a discussion of that, at the top you'll notice there are some things we know for sure. The church, as you and I appreciate it, did not exist in the days of the Old Testament. 
We know that again because the church was founded. It was purchased by the blood of Christ. And so it could not have been established before Christ died at Calvary. It couldn't have been. Acts 20.28 still says, as Paul addressed those elders of the church at Ephesus, he said, Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers to feed the church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. The Lord purchased the church with His blood. Thus it couldn't have been in existence prior to the time He shed His blood for it. Thus may we never think the church existed in the days of David, or the days of Moses, or the days of, let's say, other Old Testament characters. It didn't. But not only that, there are those who are sometimes quick to say, and maybe you've had discussion with certain of your neighbors who will claim, don't you know John the Baptist established the church? He by all means did not. Do you remember when the Lord Himself told John, among those born of women there hasn't arisen a greater than John. But of those in the kingdom, even the least in the kingdom is greater than he. John was never in the kingdom. He was never in the church. Matthew 11 verse 11. Thus... The church wasn't established even in the days of John the Immerser. But look even further than that. You notice rather interestingly some of the following statements. We do learn this. Jesus made this statement in Matthew 4.17. Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At the time the Lord made that statement, the kingdom wasn't in existence, but He said it's at hand. It isn't going to be that long. It isn't going to be very much longer. I might suggest that John the Immerser made the same statement in Matthew 3 verse 2. At hand. Now one by one, as we reflect on the nature of statements like that one, you remember what the Lord stated in prayer in Matthew chapter 6? As He taught His apostles to pray, He said, Thy kingdom come. Did you notice He used a future tense verb? The kingdom hadn't at that time come. But again, it wasn't going to be that long, of course. Finally, we might ask this. In Mark chapter 9 verse 1, this one is a very, very strong statement. May I read it and then invite your consideration to it. Mark 9, verse 1. Now this was very near the Lord's crucifixion in time, and He said, And He said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There be some of them that stand here which shall not taste of death till they have seen the kingdom of God come with power. Jesus made the rather direct statement, that in the presence of that group of people to whom He was speaking that day, He said, There are some of you who are here at this point who shall not die before the kingdom of God comes with power. Isn't it clear then that the Lord's kingdom, which we know from other passages is the church, that it was to be established within the lifetime of those who were present in the days of Mark 9 verse 1. That is to say, it was not going to be something established a thousand years later than that, or two thousand years later, or any such number as that. It was to be within the lifetime of some of those who heard the Lord speak that day. It is no wonder in that regard we have to be very close. And so, why don't we observe 
the text that was read in Luke 24. You may recall that after the Lord was crucified and after He was resurrected, He had this charge to His apostles, "...tarry ye in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high." Now you and I just noticed in Mark 9.1 that they were going to be the recipients of power, and now He said, "...you'll receive it in Jerusalem." as we launch forward upon that particular slide. All we have to do is turn one chapter forward. You see, Luke, as he wrote that book of Luke, he also wrote the book of Acts. So go from Luke 24 to Acts chapter 1. And look at what we observe and what we read in that interesting development. Acts, the opening chapter. In verse number 8, the text says, Ye shall receive power. Who's the ye? Those apostles to whom the Lord was addressing His comments at that time. Ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. They had just been told in Mark 9.1 they'd be the recipient of power. And now in Acts 1.8, they were furthermore told that they were to receive that when the Holy Ghost came upon them. So if we can find when the Holy Ghost came upon them, that will signal when the power came to them. And it will be, of course, the matter touching the kingdom's establishment. In Acts chapter 2, we read the following. And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled all the house where they were sitting. And there appeared unto them cloven tongues like as a fire, and it sat upon each of them, and they, be, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. The power had come upon them. The Spirit, in essence, delivering that power. And so what the Lord had said in Mark 9, 1 had now come to fruition. It's time for the kingdom. It's time for the church. For that reason, on that slide, you'll notice, we thus can piece those matters together and make this final statement about it. The power came upon those apostles. And as the text directly told us, they began to talk in languages they'd never learned. They spoke in tongues as the King James reads it. The power came upon them. And as it did, beginning in verse number 14, Peter and the others preached a sermon, a powerful lesson in which they made note of the nature of the Christ Namely, His death, His burial, His resurrection. But not only that, His ascension to glory. As they did all of that, you'll notice that they preached about the reality of sin and that those people were guilty of it. But as verse number 36 closes the lesson, He said, Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus that you crucified both Lord and Christ. At this point, what do you and I then notice closing the chapter? About 3,000 responded and were baptized. And did you note verse 47? Praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. The church was now in existence because about 3,000 were added to it. Amazing, isn't it? We have just learned the date of the church's establishment. And for that reason, you can finish these observations. 
The church, again, didn't exist in the days of the Old Testament. It didn't exist within the days in which the Lord walked upon the earth. But it did come into existence on the day of Pentecost, the first Pentecost following the resurrection of Christ in the year A.D. 30. That's when the church began. And any religious organization that traces its history to any date of beginning other than that one cannot possibly be the church of our Lord. It couldn't be. And yet, at the bottom I've listed at least a few that you might note based on the things that are often presented even in our day. The Lutheran Church. Well, if you look at any of the records, for instance, of that organization, we trace our heritage to a gentleman named Martin Luther in the year 1520. Now, the last I checked, A.D. 30 is not the same as A.D. 1520. They're not the same. May I say there's a problem? Then that couldn't apparently be the church for which the Lord died. It's too late. It came too late. Or look at another one. A very well-known one was begun in the year 1607 in the work of Roger Smith and others. We often recognize it as the Baptist church. A.D. 30 is not the same as A.D. 1607. In fact, it's over 1,500 years too late. It's over a millennium and a half too late. One more time, we have reached a point of problem, at least from the human standpoint. Isn't it interesting then, here is a definitive and concrete matter, and all we have to do is look at the annals of history and appreciate the statements that are made by those who adhere to various ideas. Look at, the, look at another one, the year 1872. In the life and times and work that came to be the well-noted Jehovah's Witnesses, we know that that organization had its beginning with the work of those leaders of that time and their association in various ways. And yet, 1872 is not the same as A.D. 30. Isn't it interesting in light of when and where? May I say, you and I are thankful that we have the biblical record identifying the beginning of the Lord's church. It happened again on that first Pentecost following the Lord's crucifixion. But may I suggest that there was two parts to the title of this lesson, and the other one was where? We know there are literally thousands and thousands of cities upon this planet. If we know from the Bible where the church of our Lord began, that again would be a powerful recognition of identity and a beautiful thing to consider to identify the church of our Lord. For that reason, we've already noted the answer to this one. The Bible does tell us where the church began. There are clearly a lot of notable cities upon this earth. London, New York, New York City, Los Angeles, just to name a very, very small number. But where did the church of our Lord have its beginning? Was it any, in any of them? You may have noted in the reading earlier today, that there was actually mention of a city in Luke 24, 49. We'll revisit that text shortly, but let's build up to it by appreciating the following. Did the Old Testament have any prophecies to make about the city in which the church of our Lord would begin? 
Now, we learned earlier that the church didn't begin in the days of the Old Testament, but it did have prophecies concerning some of the specifics of that establishment. Would you turn to Isaiah, the second chapter, early in the book of Isaiah? And although we won't read it, this in many ways is echoed in Micah chapter 4. But in those opening verses of the second chapter of Isaiah, we have the following statement made. I'd like to read beginning in verse number 1. The word that Isaiah the son of Amoz saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And it came to pass, or it shall come to pass in the last days, that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, and shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye, and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, and to the house of the God of Jacob. And He will teach us of His ways, and we will walk in His paths, for out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now we'll pause at that point simply to say this. That text goes on to identify some additional features that would be connected to that establishment. But the closing word of that verse was the word Jerusalem. The law was to go forth from Jerusalem. Whose law? The law of God. The law that would usher in this new covenant, it was to begin its dissemination through planet earth from Jerusalem. All we have to do then is observe that it was to be connected to the city of Jerusalem. For that reason on the slide, you'll notice as we then turn to the New Testament order, Jesus had already said the kingdom is at hand. Matthew 4, 17. And as we noted just a few moments ago when we give thought to Acts chapter 2, where were those apostles preaching? Where did those events take place? Could I direct you to a few of the verses that we read in that very chapter? First of all, Jesus had said in Luke 24, 49, "...tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high." They were to wait in Jerusalem. But now as you and I come to Acts chapter 2, we know that they were, of course, observing the Pentecost. And that, and that observance took place where the temple was, and the temple was in Jerusalem. But furthermore, you and I might notice this in verse number 14. Peter, as he began the sermon that day, he said, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell where? In Jerusalem. Peter, you see, was preaching from a vantage point in the city of Jerusalem. And those others were also preaching from that same noteworthy location. They were in the right place by Isaiah 2, verses 2 and 3. May I suggest that the church began in Jerusalem. Now, with that in mind, you might notice on that slide that the ideas connected to that are, again, very, very rich. We have come across a very definitive answer. Where was your church such that it began? At the bottom of that slide, here are a few considerations. The Methodist church. We all know well how existent it is. We understand well how frequently appearing it is. May I ask, where did it begin? You can go look in any encyclopedia as it relates to the Methodist church. It began in England. That's where John Wesley lived. It's where he worked. And he's recognized as the founder of that religious organization. Question, 
since England is not where Jerusalem is. Could it be that that is the church of which we read about in the New Testament? It seems an impossibility, doesn't it? Jerusalem is not in England. Or yet, try another one. What about that organization known as the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? We understand well, again, how frequently occurring it is. Where did it begin? A very quick look at any historical reference will tell you it began in the western part of the United States of America. But yet Jerusalem is not in the western part of the United States of America. It seems by the very character of the observation, by the nature of what the Bible has revealed, organizations like these cannot be the church for which our Savior died and cannot be the organizations which are recognized as His faithful body today. Denominationalism is a serious problem, isn't it? The Bible has given us concrete answers to these questions. Where did it begin and when did it begin? And any organization that doesn't trace its place in time to those answers cannot be the church of our Lord. Now, you can add many other examples to this. I have chosen the ones today, both by date and time and by location. But I would offer the following. As we have looked at all of them, it's time for a point of conclusion. The God of heaven has not left matters of this discussion up to our sole discretion. Men can offer their answers to these questions, but our interest is what has God said? What saith the Scripture? Romans 4 verse 3. And the Bible says the church began in Jerusalem on the first Pentecost following the crucifixion of, our Lord, of, of Jesus Christ. And any organization that doesn't trace its origin to that place and time cannot be the church. Aren't you thankful for God's revelation? Aren't you thankful for the definitiveness of it? And that we can, in fact, appreciate His answer and cling faithfully to it. Today, it might be that in this assembly, there's someone whose life is not as it ought to be. Maybe you have been swayed by the thinking of men. After all, men are happy to say one church is as good as another. Don't ever believe it. Jesus didn't die for every church. He died for one. And if you and I aren't a faithful member of that one, it isn't the Lord's fault. It's our fault. Today, if you then, perhaps as a wayward child of God, you once knew the faith and you once were a powerful part of that body of Christ, but you have allowed Satan to drive a wedge between you and the God of heaven, why don't you come back to your first love today? Why don't you make an honest and humble confession that you've been wrong? Make a confession of error. Repent of the sins in your life. And as you do that with a heart of honesty and sincerity, and as you follow the teaching of the Word of God, He will forgive you. He's promised to. May I also say, though, that if you have never become a Christian, ponder what you're missing. That means if you've reached an age of knowing wrong from right, and you know the Lord died for you, and you know He built the church, and you know the church is the environment of the saved, and that means if you die this afternoon, you're lost. You'll never go to heaven. And you know where you will go. 
and it's too horrible to contemplate. Surely you don't want to do this. Don't you want to make it right today? Why don't you believe with all of your heart that Jesus is in fact who He said He was? Repent of the sins in your life. Make a verbal statement of confession of His identity, that which He demanded in Matthew chapter 8 and 10. And then we'll be honored to baptize you into Christ. There's great power to be seen in the blood of Jesus that you contact in that activity. And as you come forth from that watery grave, you can then faithfully live until the day you die and look forward to going home to glory. It could be that today there's need in the lives of more than one in this assembly to do that. Don't you want October the 25th, 2020 to be your spiritual birthday? A day that your name has been put into the Lamb's book of life. And as long as you live faithfully, it'll never be erased. And come that sweet day of judgment when the books are open and your name is there, He can say words like these, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter thou into the joys of thy Lord. Matthew 25, verse 21. Today, if we could be of help to you, we'd be delighted to do that. We encourage you and invite you to come now while together we stand and while we sing.